one of the luxuries of industrial research is that you're not bound to the traditional rigor and neutrality required of academic research or just science in general. We're allowed to have an opinion. We had a number of people who were reviewing the essay comment, what's with the feelings? Take this feeling section out. It's not defensible. And I felt like it needed to be addressed because to me, that's the most important part. Hello and welcome to MetaMuse. Muse is a tool for deep work on iPad and Mac. But this podcast isn't about Muse the product, it's about the small team and the big ideas behind it. I'm Adam Wiggins, joined by our guests today, James Lindenbaum. Hey there. And Shimon Kayeski. Hello. Both from Ink and Switch. Now James, you and I have been colleagues and friends for a pretty long time now, so I happen to know that similar to Muse team member Yulia, you are a huge cocktail nerd. Any experiments in that area these days? Oh, there's always ongoing experiments. Yeah, I recently decided to move to kegging cocktails. When you have a bunch of guests coming over, I often will batch up a cocktail so it's faster to serve. And you can also be really persnickety about, you know, micro adjustments to amounts and things like that and really dial in the recipe. And I decided to move to kegging the cocktails on low pressure nitrogen so they could be cold and pre-diluted and ready to drink. It's basically front-loading the work so that I don't have to do much. I can actually hang out with my guests. But there's always interesting things you learn when you start changing things around like that. I do feel like the cocktail preparation is part of the experience of being a host or something like that. I guess if you have a lot of people there and then you're doing nothing but being heads down in your bar, then that's not really being a very good host. But there also is something to the, yeah, the prep ritual, I guess. Well, as you well know, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I enjoy having the time to really like try to perfect a cocktail, really dial it in. And one of the ones I made recently, I stole from this really awesome bar in San Francisco called Kona Street Market. And it's this drink called the Banana Stand. It's an Arrested Development reference. That's the first thing that popped into my mind. Always money in the Banana Stand. Always money. Yep. And it really blew my mind when I had it. And then I've talked to the guys there about it. And then I've been just like gradually trying to recreate it on my own and get it dialed in. But I think we're there. I think we're close enough to perfection. We're certainly close enough that you would have made me ship it at this point. That's a little inside joke there for the listeners. James and I have a long time, let's call it productive tension, usually productive of, I like to ship stuff and he likes to make it perfect. And hopefully somewhere in the middle of that is sort of an ideal place to be. And we'd love to hear a little bit about both your backgrounds. Maybe, Shimon, you can start us out. Yeah, sure. So for the last two years or so, I've been principal investigator at IncanSwitch and occasionally doing consulting research projects. Before that, my background is I've been running a small R&D studio and we've been basically working on unusual interface problems, things like designing and building bespoke layouting engine for European Space Agency or some kind of like interface for exploring machine learning for molecular synthesis. And before that, my background was in actually creative coding. I was doing work on museum art pieces, tooling for interactive art, data visualization, stuff like that. What I do also, other than work, I make a little bit of experimental music and various computing projects for fun. Yeah, I feel that the music experiments that you do and performances sometimes, right? Yeah. Also bleeds into your yeah creative coding, artistic interfaces a little bit. And I think I personally take a lot of inspiration from the 
prosumer world of like audio gear and the interfaces there that are sort of designed to create art, but also intended to be pragmatic, right? You're doing a performance or something like that. And those knobs, you got to be able to grip it in the right way or whatever. So yes. I feel like you often bring your music world, electronic music world stuff in your work in Ink and Switch. And I always enjoy that personally, but I'm also a person with a little bit of an electronic music background. So maybe that's why it appeals to me. Yeah, the world there is definitely a little bit different and interesting. So I know if there are any UI designers listening to this, I encourage you to just browse Pinterest for music stuff. There's a lot of interesting references there. And James, you and I have worked together for a very long time, including perhaps most notably in co-founding Heroku. And we also created the Ink and Switch Research Lab together with some other great folks. But maybe you can fill in a little more of the story there. Sure, yeah. Well... I have always been, as I like to say, constitutionally unemployable. So I started a number of things over the years. But yeah, most notably was probably Heroku with you and our other co-founder, Orion. After that, I found that there were a lot of people coming to me, founders of developer-facing companies who you know wanted help. And I ended up advising and sitting on boards and whatnot, and eventually starting what is now a venture capital firm called Heavybit which specializes in, you know, developer-facing infrastructure kind of stuff. And so I'm still there. I spend a lot of time there, though I've kind of worked my way from being a founding full-time partner there to being a little more part-time. Yeah, and then you and I co-founded the lab, Ink and Switch, which is where I spend, I'd say, more of my time these days. I'd like to spend all of my time there, but, you know, there's so many things to do. Well, let's be honest, when it comes to paying the bills, investing in developer tools companies is probably a better gig than weird research. Yeah, I mean, you know, the path to money is more clear. That's certainly true. It's still enjoyable, though. There's so much innovation happening on that front. It's still intellectually interesting, and there's a lot of fun stuff happening there. But it certainly feels a lot closer in than the weird stuff we're doing at the lab. And you both recently published an essay on your latest research project called Inkbase. Of course, I'll link that in the show notes. But can you give us an overview for folks who haven't read the essay yet? Sure, yeah. So in the lab... We have a research track that is all about programmable ink. It's sort of a combination of doing stuff on tablets, thinking about digital ink, and thinking about end-user programming. And this project, Inkbase, it was basically the fifth, depending on how you count, the fifth project in that track of eight that we are now, we're currently working on project number eight yeah, in that track. And we're publishing this essay a little bit out of order because we wanted to take the time in this one to sort of lay a little bit more of the groundwork, sort of define what the problem is, what we're trying to do. So we spent a little more time writing it than some of the write-ups of projects that came subsequently, like Crosscut and Untangle. But yeah, we're happy to have this out there and have people you know, start to grok what it is that we're doing here with this weird programmable link stuff. Yeah, so this whole track of end-user programming is certainly one that, I mean, you know, that concept is something that even fed into Heroku. It was something that was a kind of founding idea that we knew we wanted to bring into the lab. The three of us worked on an essay titled End-User Programming that kind of touched on a history of that field and some light experiments, some of the first work you had done with the lab, Shimon. But part of what I like about this ink-based project specifically is this is taking the idea of sketches and trying to kind of take what do we like about spreadsheets and the rough computation that you can do there kind of on the fly interacting with the document in a way to take advantage of the dynamic medium but not something that's writing an app per se. Certainly has much in common with, for example, Potluck, 
We had Max and Jeffrey on just recently, but they were very focused on, okay, classic plain text and these searches, et cetera. And I feel like this is almost a complete other take on that. Tablet, stylus, sketching, kind of very loose and informal, but informal and programming are not things that we normally think of as being combinable. And indeed it is that, for me at least observing this kind of track of research from the outside in this specific project, it is that tension between the formality of programming and the systems thinking and so forth that we want from our computational tools and the looseness, sketchiness, I'm just figuring it out, I'm not sure yet, messiness that is part of thinking tools, tools for thought. So I think it's a very evocative idea to start with, and then the resulting project itself, which you can see some videos of in the essay, also is only further teases that. Yeah, that's one of the reasons we like working with Digital Ink. I mean, there's a number of reasons, but one of them is that it sort of forces you into this sort of sketching, informal, loose, fast and loose kind of mindset. And it just underscores how not fast and loose most of our programming capabilities are. And so it kind of forces us to think about, you know, what are the right affordances? How could we design a system that would let you stay in that sort of frame of mind, but still get some of the benefits of a dynamic medium? The sort of weird analogy that was sort of the prompt for the Inkbase project was, you know, we look at spreadsheets, and I personally am a huge fan of spreadsheets, as I think many of us are. And I think about the analogy, you know, if you think about spreadsheets as we have them today, as they compare to their analog predecessors, you know, a giant pad of paper and a slide rule or a calculator. It's not just that modern spreadsheets let you do what you would have done with the analog version a little bit faster. It's that they actually let you have thoughts you wouldn't have had using the old version because you can see this dynamic model and you can get intuitive understanding of how it works. You can play what if scenarios, it sparks new ideas. And so we think, okay, you've got the traditional sort of actual spreadsheet, you know, the paper analog version that is to modern spreadsheets as sketching in a notebook is to question mark, right? Like, what is the thing that goes in that box? And I don't feel like we know what it is or have really seen it. And so Inkbase was sort of a little bit of a study or an experiment around that prompt. Like, what would that thing look like? What would it feel like? What would it be like to be able to work in that spreadsheet-like way, but with ink? Now, I think a question that might be in the audience's mind is how this prompt that you just described relates to visual programming, which visual programming is something where, yeah, maybe it's more accessible to the average person or requires less programmer brain, less symbolic manipulation. Do you see it as related to that world of things or is it its own beast? So I have a little rant. <laughs> I figured you did. <laughs> yeah, that might be too early in <laughs> the podcast for a rant, but I don't think a lot of these projects that people mention as visual programming are really visual in the sense that we talk about or we think about uh, things like, like not to taxonomize the whole field, but there's things like projectional editors, maybe Scratch comes to mind where you have blocks of code that just snap together, or maybe things like MaxMSP for musicians, which is basically nodes and wires interface. So these kinds of interfaces still require thinking in this very like abstract, simple way. You just manipulate the code, not in a text buffer, but on a screen, like moving it around in two dimensions. What we think about in this thread is more about visual programming as a way working with like actual embodied objects that you can see on the screen and interact with. So you're not thinking symbolically, but concretely about the domain, the problem at hand. 
And this is kind of the thread we've been following. So in a sense, both are visual. You could argue that code in a text box is also visual, but the meaning of visual is kind of different the way we think about this and the way these sorts of projects think about it. Right. When you think of one of those nodes and wires kind of visual programming languages or something like Scratch, which I think is a great product for kids to learn to program, it is really about sort of taking a conventional program and making it not text, not pure text, but something that's a little more GUI, point and clickable. There's a lot of value to that, and there's many domains where that makes sense, but that does seem like almost a different realm from I have the sketch and I want to bring it to life using the dynamic medium of computation. Yeah, there's a really important distinction between programming with ink versus programmable ink, right? So, you know, what we're not trying to do is help you write programs with the use of ink. What we're trying to do is just use ink, you know, for the properties that ink has, digital ink, but also allow it to be dynamic in the ways that you would expect from, you know, the dynamic digital medium. And so, the programming is not the end. It's the means to have ink that does more interesting things than just, you know, sit statically on the page. You know, a lot of times we have these amazing devices and we have this pen and all this computational power in the iPad, let's say. But a lot of the iPad apps that make use of that basically just let you paint pixels on the screen with the pen. And it's just, there could be so much more there. And that's a big part of, you know, what we're thinking about with digital ink in general at the lab. And then with the programmability in particular, you know, what if that ink could respond the way that a spreadsheet does reactively to other things on the canvas? Or, you know, what is the nature of digital ink even at all? Right. I think that's a question that we're still kind of asking ourselves and doing studies around. You know, what if it worked more like string that you could pull around the page? Or what if it worked more like paper clips, right? Like a little wire thing where you you drew it, but then it wants to retain its shape. So when you pull on it or bend on it, it tries to retain some of its shape. So it preserves a little bit more of the intention or of the movements of the person who made that mark, right? A fun prompt that I like is thinking about digital ink as a byproduct of someone moving their hands. It's more the moving of their hands that's interesting and the ink is a byproduct. And if you think about it that way, then you start thinking about totally different kinds of affordances and ways to treat ink. So there's a whole realm there that we're kind of thinking about that sort of intersects in this Venn diagram with sort of end user programming and dynamic behavior. I think you already teed up our topic there, which obviously is programmable ink. And I always like to start with definitions. I think we've gotten into it a little bit, but yeah, you've mentioned digital ink. And I assume here, maybe the first thing that comes to mind there is I scribble on an iPad or potentially another tablet and stylus. And yeah, some ink-like marks appear on my screen and that's it. Is that basically what you mean by digital ink or is there more nuance to it than that? Yeah, I mean, I think that Working out that definition is sort of part of the work that we're doing that you know, I expect to take a while, so I, I don't have a crisp answer on that. When I say digital ink, yes, I'm mostly thinking of you know, the things that appear on the screen when you move a you know, pen or stylus around on an iPad or a, a Remarkable or a, you know, some kind of device like that. But I think there is this interesting question of, aside from those pixels, you know, what is it really that's there? What is ink in general, and certainly what is the digital version? I think those are really interesting questions. And then how would you define programmable ink? Well, you know, again, I think we're maybe taking a very shallow stab at it with this ink-based essay. But, you know, when we think about programmable objects or dynamic objects, we often think about objects that they have some behavior. You know, they respond in some way. 
or they change in some way, or they're able to be changed by some part of the system. And so that's mostly what we're thinking about when we think about programmable ink or dynamic ink is just something that is aware of its environment and can be manipulated either by itself or by something else, you know, on the canvas or in that environment, or even by the user. I mean, a lot of ink that you make in these tablet programs are, it's sort of dead ink. It's difficult then to pick that ink up and move it around. You know, some allow you to have selections or drag some things, but even basic things like scaling or deforming ink in a way that's smart, like a classic example is you draw an arrow from one thing to another in your notebook, and then you want to move one of those items around. Well, the arrow doesn't follow. You then have to manually move the arrow yourself and reposition it and rotate it and scale it. And when you scale that arrow, it scales proportionally, sort of naively, and it no longer looks like an arrow, right? Or it no longer points in the right direction, or the arrowhead you know, isn't facing the right way or whatever. And so that's a very difficult problem to solve from a sort of computer science perspective. But from just like a human doing stuff on a screen perspective, it seems crazy that that doesn't work correctly. And so we try to look for places where there is that strong sort of dichotomy where it seems like we've just gotten used to something being a certain way, but it actually seems kind of terrible from just a human experience perspective, especially when you get in the context of tools for thought, where I think the tools have a really huge impact on the thoughts that we have and the work that we do and the output of that work. And so these small differences or small bits of friction or small biases that the tools create actually are really important. I think it's hard not to mention McLuhan at this point, right? Like first we make the tools and then they make us. I think we really believe in this feedback loop of how the things you use impact what you can do. And this is like a hope of being better at sketching, being able to sketch dynamic models. Yeah, maybe one way to think about the it's called the current implementation of digital ink, of which Muse, you know, counts in with this. But I think it's something we've thought about a bit more than others, probably because I think it's pretty clear if you're Procreate, you know, you're a pure art tool and it's just like you want nice brushes so you can create a beautiful picture. And maybe if you're a diagramming tool, it's really clear that it's important that your arrows and boxes connect to vertices on the thing and you don't want to just like draw a rough circle around something or underline something. But one of my favorite small examples that I certainly hope we'll implement at some point is the idea if you highlight something with a highlighter and then you go in and like type in that text, does the highlight kind of stretch out the way that it would if you had selected the text and you know right-click, select highlight, something like that. And that does get into the realm of, okay, how much do you want it to like automatically detect what you're doing and make inferences about it? But if we do think of the today's digital ink as mostly being just a direct transliteration of, well, I could draw in a sketchbook before, now I've got an iPad or a Remarkable or a, an Android tablet, and that more or less looks like a sketchbook, and I can load an app that gives me a blank page that probably looks like a sketchbook, and I can draw things. And yeah, maybe I have a few more tools for manipulating. I can erase, I can undo, I can select and move things, I can duplicate, that's nice. But it's a pretty direct thing, maybe in the same way that the first word processors were essentially just hey, what if we had a typewriter on this computer thing? And it was only later on that we started to get into much richer things, like, say, hypertext, where you could never, yeah, that concept doesn't make sense in a typed document. But once you're in the virtual realm and the dynamic medium of the computer, now you can do more. But you start with that transliteration, and then over time, you figure out how it can grow into something that goes beyond its kind of analog roots. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of shared roots, obviously, between Muse and this track of work. 
you know, they have kind of shared roots philosophically in some of the ideas at the lab. And I think one of those big areas is when we talk about tools for thought, I think there are a lot of questions around what is thought work, right? What is thinking? What is thought work? What is the product of thought work? A lot of our current tools today don't really respect the work product of thought work. You know, just a basic example that I'm always ranting on is browser tabs. One thing that a lot of people spend a lot of time doing these days in the course of thought work or knowledge work is basically curating their own sort of research path, right? Whether you're researching, you know, a new toaster to buy or doing real serious academic research or whatever, a lot of times it starts in a browser and you click a bunch of links and open a zillion tabs and then you go through those tabs and you decide, you know, each of these tabs, is it interesting or not? Is it relevant or not? You close some, you leave some open. Maybe you open some additional tabs from links that you see in there. And that is actually work that you're doing. And then you end up with this sort of browser window full of tabs or multiple windows full of tabs. And that's your work product. You just spend a bunch of time and used your brain to produce that work product. And you may want to come back to that or do something with it or pause or whatever. But most of our tooling, with the exception of some interesting, you know, newer experiments, most of our tooling does not respect the placement of those windows or the locations of those tabs or the fact that they're open or not as your actual work product. And so it's treated as ephemeral. It gets lost. It's very difficult to manage. When we make notes in a notebook, most sort of personal note-taking apps treat your notes as like this very important sacred thing that they shouldn't lose. But to me, they have the same value, the same amount of work has gone into them as, you know, these browser tabs that are open, for example. And so I think when we start thinking about what is thought work, what is work product, we start to get into these questions of what would tools look like that are more respectful of these different stages of thinking. And to me, you know, rumination, I always thought was an interesting word that was used around a lot of the the muse idea. You know, there's this point where you've piled all your stuff, at least for me, I think of it as a point where I've kind of gathered all my stuff, laid it all out on the floor, and I just want to stare at it for a while and just like move it around (laughs) with my hands. And that's a really important step that most people can relate to, but it's not really supported directly as a first-class thing by most tools that are available today digitally. And I think similarly, sketching, not the art version of sketching like you might do with Procreate, but sketching as in thinking with your hand, (laughs) you know, sketching by putting marks on a page, whether it's words or drawings or doodles or whatever, that is also, in my opinion, a very under-supported activity that is a really critical activity. And the earlier you are in the process of having an idea, the more fragile that idea is and the more sensitive to your tooling those ideas are. So, you know, imagine trying to do that thinking type of sketching in a tool like Adobe Illustrator. It's basically impossible because the interface is designed for this high precision, high fidelity outcome. And so you just want to like stick a box in the corner and keep going. But in order to make that box, you've got to select the right tool. You've got to decide which kind of box. You've got to decide what kind of corner radius you want. Does it have a drop shadow? By the time you're done with all of that, you've lost, at least for me, maybe this is ADD brain, but I've completely lost the idea by then. You know, ideas are like these little wisps that you're trying to capture quickly before they, you know, dissipate. And so the nature of that tooling is really important. Yeah, I'd like maybe to add two things to this, both kind of tangential, like one thing that we started talking about, or maybe being able to like vocalize lately at the lab is this idea of the same way we have like napkin math or back of the envelope, like mathematics, just figuring out orders of magnitude of something or whatever. An interesting parallel is back of the envelope computation. Like how do you make these little interactive things with the same approach of like roughly just hand waving at the thing. And another idea bookmark maybe here is I lost it. So you're just proving my point. 
Well, actually, one thing I'd love to hear from you, Shimon, is, you know, there's been a number of projects in this track. I think Inkbase is, is certainly a very notable one, but you have become pretty accomplished. Obviously, you were instrumental in creating the tool, but you have also are probably the most accomplished user of these various research tools, you know, prototypes in the world. And indeed, you've given some good talks, including recently at Strange Loop, where you kind of give live demos or maybe they're videos, I'm not sure. But in any case, it shows your depthness with these different tools. So I guess I have to just ask, like, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to have Programmable Link, at least in this early stage? <laughs> the phenomenology of two years. <laughs> it's kind of maybe hard to describe, right? Like, it definitely feels distinctively different to how you approach doing things on your computer. So like, for example, like one thing that comes to mind is an idea we played around with CrossCut, like a different paper in the same thread, where we basically create like a little drum machine, just about connecting a couple of dynamic objects together. We have one that moves left to right. We connect the line that stays vertical, a box that finds things inside that box, and that controls a drum rhythm. So working this way is completely different to how like create my own drum machine if I wanted to, which I did a couple of times, which often means I have to turn on my Max MSP or like Python or whatever, figure out what is the correct like MIDI signal to send somewhere, basically switch to this logical thinking, oh, I will have like 16 steps. So there's an array that I need to care about now. And this array has values in it and whatever, and start thinking about very symbolically about what I'm trying to solve versus kind of the tinkering pre-college-like approach of the other things we're doing. And there's a lot of parallels like that to me where I have a very strong maybe programmer brain because I've been doing it for a while, where the way you approach solving problems in these tools is totally different. Like we explicitly tried not to have these things that feel wrong in programming. Like one example that often comes to my mind is this spooky action at a distance where you say, oh, there's this database over there. It has like an abstract ID. I'm going to grab that entity unbound it, whatever, like grab a property from it and so on. Where in Inkbase, you say, oh, this thing to the left, make it red. And that feels like very concrete. You can see results of your actions immediately. And you also think this very humane, spatial way where like something to the left is much more obvious that ID with like UI ID that has 64 characters or whatever, right? Like this is a different way you use your brain and think about things. And that really left a strong impression on me. I think that is somewhat how research works, right? If you were starting with like a really burning pain point to solve in the kind of classic sense, you'd really be starting a commercial product. Whereas research, I think, is, at least for me, is driven by a sense of how things can be different. You see the capabilities of the computational medium, particularly maybe emerging new technologies like tablet, you know, low stylus latencies as one example that I think was an inspiration for us. And you think about how you would like computers and our computing tools to be, and you see what the potential is with either the way technology is today or the way it's evolving, and you can kind of extrapolate out and think of some end state. You're not really starting with a specific use case. You're starting with a vision of how things could be. So necessarily, use cases do get a little bit kind of backed in there. To me, that seems natural. I also think we often have, at least for me, I have a lot of use cases that I want to have a tool like this for, but you need to have a pretty full-fledged version of this tool in order to actually carry out that use case and experience it, and we're quite a long ways from being there, I think. And so with some of these projects, we're trying to see how one of these use cases could be implemented, 
in some of them, it's really more about the feeling of the tool. And Inkbase is one of those projects. We explicitly said with Inkbase, okay, we're going to kick the can down the road on like what is the right programming model and what is the right interface for doing this programming and all that. And we just want to get to a place where we have dynamic ink that we have programmed that's on the screen that we can interact with just so we can get sort of a little glimpse, a little vignette of that and see what it feels like. And I found the results to be very compelling. But again, these feelings are very sort of subtle and nuanced and I think important for when you put them in context of the way that the tools you use bias the results, I think the nuanced differences in feelings of tools are really important. But they're also kind of hard to describe. And we're kind of grasping at that in this essay. One of the things we've started to talk about in the lab when we think about the design of different tools is sort of the quote-unquote natural grain of the tool. And we give a little definition in this essay. We think about how tools, most tools, physical hand tools as well as digital tools, have some sort of natural grain. A way or set of ways that the tool can be used that are easy, fluid, efficient, sort of encourages you to use the tool that way. And then there are ways to use tools that are against that grain. And not that you can't use them for those things, but they just don't work super well. Think, you know, using a machete as a screwdriver instead of as a machete, or think using Microsoft Excel to do artwork. You can absolutely do that. It's just kind of against the grain of the tool. And so a lot of times we ask, what kinds of use, what kinds of feelings do we want to be with the grain? Like, what direction do we want this grain to go? And for example, with sketching and sketchy ideas and early thoughts, we want the grain to be very much encouraging you to keep thinking and not get distracted with, you know, high fidelity thoughts. You know, is this thing pointing to the other thing? Is my square, you know, a perfect enough square? Whatever. Another thing in that bucket, in terms of trying to develop a sense of what things feel like, we've started to talk about I think this is one of Shimon's originally, is working with the material, sort of a phrase we talk about, which sort of evokes this more physical thing you might experience. Like, like in art, if you're working with, let's say, clay or some medium, charcoal, it has a very specific kind of feel and certain things that it wants you to do and certain things that are difficult to do. And just having your hands on those materials kind of shape the outcome. You kind of just let the material in some ways guide where you're going. And I think that we found that this ink base has a little bit more of that working with the material feeling, which is what we were going for, where you're actually, it's sort of like we talk a lot in the sort of end user programming world about direct manipulation, you know, where you're working on something directly versus indirectly from some program on the side or whatever. This is sort of a flavor of that, but even more direct, where you're not only directly touching the thing that you're trying to manipulate, but you're actually being influenced by how it feels. And ink, I think, is one of those things where when you interact with it, the way you move it around, the way you create it, you know, having something change color or change shape while you're drawing on it, and not after you finish your stroke, but live while you're doing it, has a very specific working with the material kind of feel. And it's hard to put my finger on exactly what that means, or it's hard for me to describe exactly how your results would be different with that feeling versus another, but it is quite distinct. And it's something that I personally am drawn to and it's something that I like about the real world that I feel is missing in a lot of our digital tools. And so I think part of this is a quest to obtain some of that in the digital realm. I support your quest. The feelings, or obviously you've used that word a lot, how does it feel or what feeling does it create or what things does it encourage in that direction. You had an interesting aside in the essay titled Research and Feelings, which I'll just read the first sentence of here. It says, perhaps controversially, at the lab, we believe 
seeing what it actually feels like to play with an imagined system is itself a valuable research result and goes on to talk a bit more about that. And actually, I think that is an interesting, I don't know, meta-learning or something like that insight, contrarian insight of the lab and something we were able to do because of our somewhat unique, not quite academic, not quite industry position. And I think it was Martin Kleppman, I feel like, was the first one that called out when he first started working with us, which is he said, basically, the fact that we are not constrained by the conventional definition of rigor, which is, okay, we user-tested this with 10 people, and with this p-value of whatever, they were able to complete the task in two seconds less, which is a very good reason science focuses on those kinds of very concrete, measurable, rigorous findings. But I think that misses something huge in the computing tool space. I do think that's a really interesting aspect of what we do at the lab. And the lab is engaged in what we call industrial research, which you know has been talked about a bit before on this podcast. And to me, one of the luxuries of industrial research is that you're not bound to the traditional sort of rigor and neutrality required of basic or academic research or just science in general. You know, we're allowed to have an opinion. <laughs> we're allowed to chase intuitions. And I, in fact, put that into the essay as sort of a defense or an explanation because we had a number of people who were reviewing the essay for me comment on, you know, what's with the feelings? Like, take this feeling section out. It's not defensible. <laughs> and... I felt like it needed to be addressed, but I wasn't going to cut it because to me, it's that's the most important part. So I kind of wanted to add a little side note defending having a research result that says something about feelings. But, you know, I do think that that's a schism that we often see where in sort of academic circles, oftentimes it's about novelty. And if an idea has been described before, then working on it further is not interesting. It's not an interesting result. And we disagree with that. We think actually taking some idea for how something might feel different or work differently and actually building it and seeing if that is in fact true is actually valuable. And sometimes we do that and we are compelled by the result and it directs you know, further research. And sometimes it's a disaster and that's surprising. It doesn't work and we learn things about why it doesn't work. And sometimes the results are sort of meh. You know, it's we have these great expectations about how this thing could feel different and then we make a thing and then it's like, eh, it's kind of a hassle and it's really not that much better. And I think all of that's really interesting fodder for understanding the nature of this problem and where we're headed. I also think conversely, on the sort of more pragmatic sort of startup engineering product oriented side of the spectrum, people build things all the time, but they often don't stop to think for long enough about you know, why they're building them or what the nature of those things are or what the most important aspects of those things should be. You know, it's sort of in the quest for ever closer hewing to user research, doing what users are asking for, you kind of start to get away from these first principle kind of based approaches. So at the lab, we're trying to strike this balance between this sort of overly pragmatic staring at your feet, just doing the next step kind of thing, and this overly, you know, impractical sort of ivory tower pontificating without actually seeing what the results are. We're trying to be somewhere in the middle. And I think our research hopefully reflects that. And I think our talking about feelings is sort of part of that quest. So if I can expand on this just a little bit, maybe from a different perspective, I think in while we're on the metal, I think maybe a common critique of HCI as a field is that you get what you measure, kind of. So if your focus is on 
making things that are measurable, there's a bunch of research that you just won't do because you, you can't really measure it. Like, I think that's why a lot of people think that's a problem with focusing on measuring mouse click speed or like how quickly you can get to a task done or whatever, which prohibits this very like exploratory programming system kind of style of research, which is very hard to measure because what do you even measure and against what else, which has its own problems. Second thing that comes to mind is we keep research logs as we work at the lab, again on the meta level. And a lot of things in these projects start with like this specific approach just feels correct or feels right. For example, one of the recent ones in the projects we're on right now were about like measuring angles of things. And someone made this example of just making like a little thing that you snap to the angle and that turns into a number. And that just felt good. <laughs> That's why we're pursuing this further. And I think this following feelings at some level is, is kind of correct or like leads to very interesting places, places that academia would go to basically because, yeah, again, how do you measure that? Yeah, I mean, maybe back to this sort of the right tool for the job idea. Most of the things that we're trying to do with these tools are certainly things that you can do with other tools, right? You can make a sketch a number of ways. You can think a number of ways. You can do calculations a number of ways. It's more about, you know, sort of having the right context, having the right tool, bringing the tool to the problem rather than the problem to the tool, those kinds of things. You know, maybe a concrete example. Just yesterday, I was trying to get the square footage of a small space and I made a sketch of the shape of the space. And then I went around with my little laser, you know, measurer and measured the length of all the walls. And I did this as a sketch because it's very difficult to walk around a room with a computer and then put those numbers in and describe which wall those numbers are associated with. It's much easier to just write those numbers on a sketch of the shape of the room. And it doesn't feel right to sit down and open up a graphics program and try to make a perfect version of that room before measuring it. It really feels like a thing that wants to be a sketch on a napkin or whatever. However, once you have done that, I then need to break that shape up into a bunch of squares and calculate the area. And that starts to feel like a spreadsheet problem. Because once I do that, I often, when you measure things in the real world, they often don't entirely add up. You know, the two segments of the wall on the left side don't add up to exactly the wall on the right side. And you kind of need to figure out if you made a serious measuring error or if it's just, you know, the world isn't perfect. And so you need to do this math, but then you need to check the math against the other side and you may need to make some adjustments. It feels very spreadsheet-like in that you want the machine to sort of help you check your math versus pulling out a calculator and doing these things like 30 times. And so now I'm suddenly sitting here with this thing that should be a sketch with some numbers on it, wanting to do a little bit of math, which I want the sort of power of the digital medium for. But my options are basically, I have to set the sketch down and look at it while I open up a spreadsheet and do it in a spreadsheet sort of disembodied from the sketch where I can't associate this set of numbers being multiplied with this area on the diagram, or I've got to do it with a calculator and I don't get the power of the spreadsheet and it's hard to check my math. This isn't an important problem. It's not like a thing I can't solve. It's not a thing that people don't solve every single day. You can open up SketchUp and you can put all the numbers in there and it'll tell you the area, for example. But it just doesn't feel like the right tool for this job. It feels like you should be able to sketch this thing out on your iPad, walking around with it, and then, you know, do that math and like draw the boxes on there yourself and then, you know, do the multiplication and see what it adds up to. And maybe jiggle the drawing a little bit <laughs> when you realize that, you know, they don't add up. And I think having tools like that, it's hard to imagine exactly what we would do with those things. But I find personally that I have uses, little use cases like that every day 
that I would reach for this tool if I had it. And then you start thinking about situated software and the way spreadsheets, one of the things I think is interesting about spreadsheets is that often a piece of software evolves out of that process. So you do that once and then you throw it away, it gets lost in your you know, Google Drive or whatever, but then you go to do it again and perhaps you want to you know, rework some of that logic. An example from my life is batching cocktails, which we, we talked about a bit earlier. You know, often when you want to scale up a cocktail, certain things don't scale linearly and you start doing a bunch of math and you need to convert units and it's easier to weigh things than measure volumes when you're doing large amounts and blah, blah, blah. So you end up building a little spreadsheet to do this thing and you throw it away after you make your cocktail. But then maybe you go to do this again a week later and it saves you time to open that thing up and duplicate it and then adjust it for a different cocktail. And then after you've done that two or three times, you might start to say, you know what? This seems to be a thing I keep doing over and over again. Why don't I invest a little bit of time cleaning the spreadsheet up, making it a little bit clearer, making it more, you know, sort of input-output driven so I can just paste in the ingredients and have everything turn out the right way. Maybe I'm going to invest in adding a table that does unit conversions from ounces to, you know, milliliters to weights or whatever. And you eventually end up with this little piece of situated software. And this is a true story from my life. I have this thing. And then a friend sees it. And then they're like, oh man, I have the same problem all the time. Will you send me your spreadsheet so I can start using it? And now we've basically made a piece of software. And I think that's a really important sort of flow that this is something we call gradual enrichment in the lab. For lack of a better name, we're still grasping at what the right name is for this. But this idea that you start out loose and sketchy like you would on a napkin and you end up with a piece of software. And at no point did you sit down to write a piece of software. You just keep incrementally adding little bits of behavior over time. And only as the payoff is obvious. You're only investing little bits at a time when you're going to get an immediate sort of payoff for that investment. And we would like to see that same gradual scale up with sketching, staying right in place where you make that sketch, like having to stop and change tools to throw away the sketch, move to your laptop, open up Illustrator or whatever. That feels very discontinuous. And I would really like to be able to just do this continuous thing. I think the reason this happens in spreadsheets is that you're doing the whole thing in the spreadsheet in the same place the whole time with the same tooling. And I think you need the same ability to start with a sketch, stay in that sketch app, stay on that device indefinitely, come back to it in the future, keep adding little bits until you eventually have what is effectively a piece of software that started as a sketch, but all stayed in that one place. And I think, you know, for me, that's the grand vision that we're trying to get to eventually and figuring out what that looks like at each of these steps. It's sort of the aggregate of the research, right? You know, we look at the first step, the middle step, the end steps. Some of the end steps of this are a little bit more clear. How do you add complex behavior to a big, complicated thing already in an app? We know what that looks like. What we don't know is what does it look like at the beginning? You know, we we know you you start with a blank canvas, you break some marks on there, and then fast forward a year, you've got a piece of software running in this canvas app. What's the dot, dot, dot in the middle? And I think that's sort of a set of questions that we're working on in this track. That very beginning moment with software creation, there's a lot of ceremony, right? It isn't let me first make the sketch and add a computation, for example. And I would say Potluck, another project I referenced there earlier, has some of this coming at it from a text angle. But you're sort of starting with data that you collected or something you've written down in some format, and then you're adding bits of computation to that. And the programming world is really built around the complete opposite flow, which is I am writing a program now, and I begin with, I'll say Rails new, I'm sure the kids these days have something sexier, but whatever it is, you're creating the new project in the IDE and you're initializing it and you're setting up your unit tests or your models and setting up your database schema. And it's actually quite a while 
and quite a lot of super abstract programmery things before you get to the point of your specific data and your specific problem that you're going to work on. And of course, I think is part of the reason we reference spreadsheets so often when talking about end user programming is this really is one of the few cases of successful commercial software or successful kind of end user application where you really don't start with, I'm going to write a program. You start with, I'm going to enter my data. I'm going to type in a couple of numbers and then you can add computation to that. It's interesting that you mentioned potluck and not to put words in Jeffrey's mouth. There's been some interesting cross-pollination from this project and, and Inkbase. So historically, Inkbase predates Potluck. And from a couple of conversations I had with Geoffrey, some of the ideas around like spatial matches and thinking about problem in a way where you find things on the canvas in a text document and enhance them with additional dynamic behavior. It's interesting to see the parallels between these two projects, what I'm trying to articulate maybe, <laughs> and how the same ideas in the lab keep like appearing in different places. Yeah, Potluck is a really interesting project, and certainly all these projects have influenced each other quite a bit. I think one of the most interesting things about Potluck is this related problem that you don't have structured data when you're starting to do something in one of these tools, whether it's something like Inkbase or something like Potluck, which is based on plain text. Whether you've got a bunch of ink marks or a bunch of plain text, the goal with Potluck was you know, to take something that you would otherwise, the way you would normally do something, like tracking your you know, recipes or tracking your workouts or whatever in a plain text file where there's no fixed format and you can kind of enter them however you want. And maybe you're not 100% consistent about the way you enter those things and you stick little notes in there, use different units. Don't leave the units off some days because you know what they are. That's not very acceptable to a program the way we normally do programming, but you don't want to have to clean all those things up and normalize them, standardize them in order to be able to do something with them. And same with, there's this analog in Inkbase where you want to do something like, I don't know, you want to attach something to the left side of an object. But if you have like a squiggly mark that you made with the pen, what is the left side, right? You want to align things or snap them together. But, you know, the bounding box and the actual shape of the rectangle that you drew are completely different. You didn't even close the rectangle. It's not even a closed polygon. It's, you know, non-orthogonal. It's probably not even a quadrilateral, whatever. So it's a very similar problem where you need to be able to work with semi-structured data or data that's sort of evolving slowly from being totally unstructured towards being totally structured. Maybe it never gets to totally structured. And, you know, I think the spreadsheet is another example of this where often you start out just throwing numbers in boxes all over the place and it's kind of a mess. And maybe eventually you kind of clean things up into columns and you make sure they're all the same type or formatted the same way or whatever. But spreadsheets are very tolerant of this semi-structuredness. You know, if you sum a column of numbers in a spreadsheet and one of them is text, it doesn't break. It doesn't just break. The whole thing explodes, gives you a bunch of errors. Generally, it just coerces that text into a number or it ignores that. It has some default behavior where it still allows you to get an answer. And maybe it shows you that there's this weird thing happening and you need to go fix it or whatever. But it's very tolerant of this sort of looseness and this semi-structuredness. And I think that's one of the interesting things explored in Potluck is how do you do computations on a thing where some of your ingredients are structured as ingredients and some of them aren't, or some of them have units and some of them don't. And I think there's a very significant parallel to what we're doing in Inkbase. And I think the sort of querying is one of the solutions that we're both grasping at in Inkbase. You're doing spatial queries, you know, find this thing to my left, find this thing inside of my bounding box, find this thing that it's overlapping with me. And in Potluck, you're doing a text query, you know, find this thing that looks like this, that, you know, has these letters or whatever. And then you can do something and build on the results of that query. 
And importantly, in both systems, it's a live query. So this isn't run a query, look at the results, then iterate. I think you hinted at this earlier, Shimon, talking about as you're drawing and as your dynamic behavior is being applied. So something like turn this checkbox green when I check it, it happens as you're going. And if there's a problem with the dynamic behavior or if there was a problem with your check that it didn't land inside the box or something like that, you will really see that right away. It's not an iteration process. It's a, just a completely live process. Yes. Interestingly, this also opens up a different way of solving problems, right? It's like you could fix your program so it catches the check mark a little bit off to the side or whatever, or you could just wiggle it and move it into the checkbox because it will turn green as long as it's like as quickly as it matches or finds the solution or whatever. Like this way of basically seeing responses from the machine as you interact with it, like promotes this different way of solving problems. You don't always have to think in this very programmatic way. You can feel this very like loose, sketchy, vibey way where I'm just going to wiggle some things until the machine does what I, what I want it to do. Yeah, we have a little saying on that team, just jiggle it a little bit. You know, it's sort of like the old fix the TV reception by banging on the side. It's sort of like, oh, just jiggle it a little bit. But it's a really interesting interaction because, you know, you do a query, let's say you're trying to recognize a shape and it doesn't recognize that shape. You could try to rewrite the recognizer, but you could also just like jiggle that line segment a little bit so the path looks a little bit more like what it's looking for. And now, bam, it gets recognized and the thing starts happening. And this does lead into a way of solving problems. We were just the other day talking about this little sort of geometry problem. It stems from a real world use case where you've got like a countersunk hole and you're trying to figure out what angle the hole is at so you can order the right screws with the right angled screw head. And it's a similar to my example of the area of a floor plan. You sort of draw the thing and take a couple of measurements, but then you need to do some trigonometry to figure out what the angles are. And you've now got this sort of semi-structured information where you've got a sketch, which is not to scale, and you've got some numbers which are correct. And you've got to do a calculation. And there's this question of, you know, different ways to solve that problem. One is to just do some math on the side next to this drawing. But another is to actually attach the functions that take, let's say, the angle, you know, read out the angle of a sketch, of a shape, attach those to your sketch, and then manipulate the sketch until the lines are to scale. Basically drag the lines around until the computer says that they are the lengths that you measured. And then you will know that the angle is correct. It's a very different approach, but it feels very natural if you're working sort of with pen in hand and you're just kind of working in this sketchy way and you can sort of just jiggle this around. Or there's also examples that Shimon demonstrated from the Untangle project where it's looking for matches against things and sometimes it doesn't catch one and you just kind of jiggle the model a little bit until it does and then you move on. And it's just a very interesting way, way of working. So this is maybe an interesting throwback to when we started talking about feelings, which is a lot of these interesting ways of using these things like are like second order. Basically, you have to working in some way, you start interacting with it, and you realize that this is the way to do something in it, which is not a thought I would have one step back, right? Without working with the material, working with the concrete thing that feels a certain way. And wasn't there also a concept in another project in the same research track around the bi-directional connection? That is to say, in the sketch example there of like you have a number and you have a line and you want to make the number and the line the same size and typically in programs you have a one-way flow i write the html and that gets rendered by the browser i can't scribble on the screen in my browser and have that get reflected back in the html code to take one example and there's i think a world of 
bidirectional linking research that I think you folks did some with, and some of the prior argue list for Inkbase as well includes Apparatus, now there's Cuddle, which I think was a good example of this, of trying to make it so that you have this two ways to represent something, the line and the number, for example, and that you can change either one and they each update each other. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting way to work and it feels very natural. Things that only flow one direction feel a little bit strange sometimes. You know, you imagine you draw this little sketch of, let's say, a triangle and you write some numbers from your real-world measurements on there. You then tell the system this line segment is, you know, 27 units long. Well, what happens, right? Are you asking the system to make that line 27 units long? Or are you asking to just leave it alone, but think of it as 27 units long? And then what happens to the other lines on the page? Are you rescaling the drawing based on that line? Or are you mixing structured and unstructured data? You know, in spreadsheets, spreadsheets obviously are very one directional in their flow. Things get very confusing if you try to, you know, sum numbers and then change what the sum result is and have that back propagate into the column. But it also can be very powerful. And the number of people have made bidirectional spreadsheets, which are quite interesting to play with. But in this case where you're associating sort of some freehand work with some numbers or something else structured, it feels very much like they should stay in sync and you should be able to edit either place. It feels very strange not to be able to change your drawing that you've made or not being able to change the number that you've associated with it. So it feels almost necessary for it to be bidirectional in order to not feel like you're constrained arbitrarily by the tool. But then you get into these interesting questions of, you know, you're creating error in the system when you change one of those things, and what do you do with it? Do you push it, do you backpropagate it to the other side? What does it mean to change a drawing to match some numbers that you put in there? And I think those are really interesting questions. And, and even just exploring the affordances, you know, what kinds of UI elements do you want to have on the screen for doing that sort of thing is a really interesting question and a sort of focus of work for us. Yeah, and to add to that, this way of thinking is maybe very foreign <laughs> to software developers, like discovering these techniques or reading about them, like definitely felt very alien <laughs> at first to me. It definitely feels interesting and more correct to work in this medium where you have two representations for a thing to be able to manipulate each one of them. The problem is, of course, in the details, and usually this leads to some very strange artifacts, a lot of technical problems or things like doing a lot of calculations on these values. Not everything is clearly solvable backwards in a way that feels natural. And then you start thinking about how do I adjust my calculations so the system does the thing that I want it to do. And at that point, you're lost <laughs> doing the abstract symbolic thing again that we want to avoid. So there's a lot of dials that we need to turn in proper ways for the system to make sense. One of our early projects in this tract was called Rectoverse, and it was a relaxation-based constraint solver. And, you know, you'd put things on the canvas and then you'd specify these constraints. You know, I want this thing to be next to this thing. I want these things to be the same width or whatever. And then you could interact with the model live and the constraint solver would try to maintain those constraints. And it often felt in the beginning like, you know, the classic tale where there's a genie in a bottle and you get three wishes. And every time you wish for something, you technically get the thing that you wished for, but like everything else goes wrong. It sort of felt like that where, you know, it'd be like, oh yeah, they're definitely the same length, but it did it by making the width of one of them negative or <laughs> you just like, took it off the canvas, maybe we get a massive, you know, X value that took it off of the canvas or whatever. And so it's like, technically, yes, you solve the problem, but that is not what you want. And so then you have to be able to add more constraints relatively easily and quickly to sort of coax the machine into where you want it to end up, sort of like giving hints to the query planner in SQL or something like that. And 
that's also an interesting way of working. And it can sometimes feel like the right tool for certain kinds of problems. But if you end up having to specify 47 constraints just to like keep two things you know, next to each other, it starts to not feel productive or ergonomic. So there are a lot of different approaches to how you specify computation. You know, that was a constraint-based system. Ink-based, we intentionally sort of punted on thinking about that problem. And so we just implemented a Lisp interpreter inside the iOS app, which is, you know, clearly not an ergonomic thing to do, but it was pragmatic for us. And so it was a very specific implementation of dynamic functionality, but it uses sort of a data flow-like thing, sort of like in a spreadsheet where it's declarative and reactive. And then cross-cut was an attempt at sort of going far afield on how else you might specify the programming model. And it was sort of this wires and boxes way to sort of connect value between different elements on the screen and this idea of meta ink versus ink and specifying sort of dynamism with meta ink. And then the regular ink was sort of concrete ink. And then Untangle, another project in this track, was a totally different way of looking at it using, you know, SAT solvers to basically specify a set of conditions that needed to be met and then let the system figure out whatever permutations it can come up with that will meet those constraints. And sort of one of our conclusions from looking at all these different things, when we started out on this track, we were hoping to find the one true way, you know, the one correct way to do computation that makes sense in this environment. And what we ended up, you know, discovering, perhaps unsurprisingly, is that there is no one best way. And there are a lot of different ways, and some of them are better suited to some problems than others. And so we've sort of concluded that you're going to need to be able to approach any problem, any use case you have with different kinds of computational strategies or engines or whatever, mental models. And so now what we're really working on is a nice substrate in which you can combine different kinds of computational model, you know, bring in the one that makes sense. You, know, you have a use case, you have in your mind an easiest way to solve that problem with tools that you know, you need to be able to just bring that tool in and do it and have those tools be able to interoperate. And so that's a big part of what we're working on now. And I'll link the essays to the projects you mentioned, which have been published. I think you mentioned some either things we haven't published yet, or in some cases we may never have an essay for. Sadly, we don't manage to get to an essay for every project we ever do, since often writing the essay is at least as much work as doing the project itself. That's right. Inkbase, Crosscut, and Untangle, there are all essays for. Rectiverse is a very old one, for which there isn't. And I don't want to make any hard promises, but I'm pretty sure we will have a solid essay for the current project we're working on. Excellent. Yeah, because I do feel that certainly for Muse, you know, if you look at the progression of research papers, which included one that I had written as a medium post, wasn't even really a research paper, just talking about kind of the tablet as a form factor, the capstone project, and eventually we have the Muse paper, and you can see these threads that start to come together, and they're rougher and rawer. Not to say that there's one output, as you point out, there's these different tracks which may all be fruitful and cross-pollinate with each other and so forth. But in some cases, it's not the single essay, but indeed the progression of them for those that have the patience to read multiple five-plus thousand-word essays on a particular topic. It's a lot of words. I think the length of the essay is inversely proportional to our understanding of the problem. So hopefully they'll get shorter as we get smarter. Now, another thing that I do think makes Inkbase and a few of the other projects in the track that you both have worked on stand out relative to some of the other examples we've given here 
is the embrace of the tablet form factor. And of course, we talked about digital ink earlier. I'm curious how you both see the tablet as being important or not to this kind of realm of research, or is it that it really is about the digital ink? And so you could kind of do that with like, I don't know, Wacom tablet connected to your computer. That's probably fine. Or is there something really to that form factor that is very sketchbook-like and you see the ink uh, appearing under the stylus? Or is it something else altogether? How important is the tablet in all this? So I can start maybe with the meta level, which is one of my favorite quotes from Monolake is, and I won't like, <laughs> won't give it word per word, but what he says is to be really creative, you need a lot of constraints. And he often chooses like one synthesizer to make a new song or whatever. And then here, like the tablet is a very hard constraint. Like it has a lot of interesting properties. It's like a page size. It's very human scale. You have the stylus and fingers as an input mechanism. All of that is like a double-edged sword, right? Like you're so disconnected from <laughs> what we learned about keyboards and mouse and pointers and whatever that you have to kind of invent everything from scratch a little bit. And that is both like very good, I think, for research, right? Because it opens up this new way of thinking about a specific field, but also very hard because at the same time, we're trying to figure out both <laughs> what this and also how to do things on it. Yeah, to me, the jury is sort of still out on the tablet form factor, but there are some compelling aspects of it. I mean, we have a whole series of weird hypotheses at the lab about, you know, form factors and in HCI specifically. I do think that for me, I'm really fascinated with hands. I think human hands are really interesting. They have an incredibly high number of degrees of freedom, and we have large portions of our brain sort of devoted to using them without interfering with our thinking. And so, you know, outside of our sort of visual cortex, I think our hands are sort of the highest bandwidth connection between our minds and the world. And right now, we don't, in my opinion, make particularly good use of the size of that channel when we're just sort of like, you know, tapping on a keyboard or pointing at something on a pane of glass. And so getting at more of that richness of interaction with our hands is really interesting to me. I think holding a pen is in some ways an improvement. It doesn't obviously open up that entire channel, but I think holding tools in your hand and doing things with them is a higher bandwidth modality. And we've done some experiments with having multiple kinds of tools that you can use to interact with a tablet at the same time. You know, multiple pens, straight edges, knobs, you know, whatever. There's a whole sort of tangent on that. But I do think having pen in hand and working is an interesting and compelling way to work. I also think some of the things that were exciting to me about the origins of Muse in the lab, for example, you know, I've always loved the idea of being able to use both hands at the same time. It has always seemed strange to me that most of the touch interfaces and even the APIs for those interfaces are not really designed for using more than one hand at the same time or using a hand while using a pen, which is a very natural thing to do. We do all the time in you know, the real world. And so a lot of our early lab experiments in that track were around just seeing if we could do that even with the existing hardware and software. And it turned out the answer was yes. And it was really compelling to, to have that feeling of using both hands. It felt very freeing. It just turns out to be quite a pain in the butt to do because it's sort of against the grain of the APIs, as you guys well know, at Muse. And I think you've done a lot of hard work to retain some of the aspects of that. And then I think there are aspects of it that are only viable in a research setting because they're not reliable or Apple doesn't want you doing them that way or whatever. 
But I think that's really interesting. And so that's, to me, one of the reasons the tablet is interesting is that it's a way to have the pen in hand. I do think it's critical that you have the visual feedback, right? As you move the pen along the screen, something is happening on the screen at the location where the pen is. We've experimented with Wacom tablets and other kinds of you know, stylus-based input tools where your hand is doing something somewhere and where you're looking is somewhere else. And it completely breaks the high bandwidth interface between your brain and the real world, I think does not really tolerate that very well. And so I think that's one of the reasons we like tablets. Another is the portability. You know, I have this pet theory that like a drafting table is sort of the ultimate correct form factor for like a personal sort of thinking station. Part of that really has to do with the ergonomics of the human body and like the length of the forearm. You know, you want something that's sort of the forearm radius, you know, size. But the portability of the tablet, I think, is really important. I think that, as you guys agree with it, Muse, you know, thinking and creativity requires sort of moving around a lot of times, going somewhere, walking around, sitting at a coffee shop, or taking the device to the place where the problem is. You know, walking around the room, taking the measurements, which is just not possible with other kinds of form factors. And I think, you know, the phone or the really mini tablet is maybe not big enough to really be able to hold and have enough screen space, enough canvas to make marks. So the tablet kind of ends up being in this interesting intersection. But most people that I know who are sort of accomplished makers, when I talk to them about tablets, they all basically say, yes, I have one. It's in a drawer somewhere. I go through you know, phases of using it and not using it. And I think that's really interesting that we have this incredibly powerful device with this you know, stylus that seems to have so much potential, at least on paper, but then people often don't really find meaningful uses for them. And there are people who do their whole life on the tablet, but when I look at their workflows, it seems a bit strained. Like you have to be quite dedicated to really do everything on a tablet, I think. And so one of our sort of prompts at the lab is sort of hypotheses is maybe this tablet is really great and we just don't have the right software for it yet. Right? The UI, the UX, the mental model for working with it just isn't quite right yet. And that's why we spend a lot of time with them at the lab. Well, there's all very exciting research, and with each subsequent essay, we fill in more of the picture. Where do you both see maybe the medium to longer-term future here, which includes maybe something practical like, when can I get a usable production app to do the floor plan sketch problem you previously described there, James? But maybe also just more broadly, what is the long-term direction? What do you hope to get out of this? What can we hope to see in the future? I think it's a really interesting question. You know, people often ask us, when can I get a version of this to use for myself? And we in the lab, in fact, would like to have versions of some of these things to use on a daily basis. Most of them are sort of prototypey research experiments that are not very well suited to real use. I think we are working in the direction of things that might actually be able to be maintained and start to accrete features and, you know, be usable. One of the other luxuries of the lab is that we don't have to think too hard about, is this a thing that can make money? Is this an app people will buy? Is there a market? How much will people pay? We get to not think about that at all. We do care about whether we're solving what we think is a real problem or whether there's a real context of use. You know, We care very much about that. So I think our primary motivation is to understand the nature of the problem so that we can work towards some various solutions, which might eventually result in products or software. Or, you know, maybe if we talk enough about the nature of the solution, lots of people will make software, and that's fine too. I think 
with this specific track where we're headed is, you know, the current project we're doing now, which is sort of codenamed Habitat. It's the first one where we have spent a bunch of time investing in the underlying infrastructure, you know, sort of the substrate for the app. You know, normally every time we do one of these projects in this track, we sort of start from scratch, from first principles. What's the right set of technology stack? What's the right architecture? What are the right things to use to build this? And that's important to not be arbitrarily constrained by your technology stack. But now that we've sort of converged over time on sort of one stack that we think is correct or the best, we've started to be willing to invest in building sort of a shell of an app that we can then use for multiple projects. So we're now investing in building a thing that we hope will be reusable. And that is sort of the first step towards being able to actually build on top of previous projects with future projects and be able to actually start to create features that stick around and also invest in some basic things we don't always have time for during research projects like, you know, persistence working correctly, apps not crashing all the time, fighting against the constant bit rot of, you know, Apple's API changes, etc. So as you guys are much more intimately familiar with at Muse. So I think we are headed in that direction, but I think we're still sort of in the early days of understanding what is it that this thing is for and therefore what are the most important features that we need to build. But we're headed in the direction of dogfooding some apps for ourselves inside the lab. And then hopefully if we can get to a place where that works, we can sort of expand the use outside of the lab. But yeah, that's kind of where we are now is just sort of thinking about interchangeability of these different programming models and starting to invest in nicer and nicer ink engines, for example, which is a thing we often punt on as well. So we can spend some time on performance optimization, that sort of thing, all in the name of being able to get a true sense of what it feels like to use one of these tools. Maybe to close on the feelings subject again, since that seems to be a theme here. I think the question of you make a prototype, you know, we usually time box things to some pretty small amount of time. And when you're, as you said, starting very blank slate, and then you're getting to a usable thing in a month, two months, you know, it's not a lot of time. And you always have this question of if the feeling is meh or it's not quite clicking or it's not quite able to show that it could fulfill the vision that maybe you had for it in the beginning, is the problem that it needs a little more effort to be better? Because indeed, even the greatest painting in the world, you know, you look at that very early line sketch that sometimes you can see under an x-ray on the canvas or something, no one would be moved by that. No one except the original artist understands what that means. And you have to get it to a certain level of fidelity or a certain level of completeness before it makes sense. And when we're trying to kind of do this real-time iteration of we have an idea for a thing that we think could work and indeed feel a particular way, the thing we made doesn't feel that way. Is it that we just need to do a little more in this direction or is it the direction is wrong and it's just a constant judgment call? I feel part of the way we've hacked that is just the time boxes where we say, well, we're going to try this direction for this period of time where a period of time is weeks or months, but not a long period of time. And then we'll go back and kind of start anew. Yeah, I think one of the things that maybe is obvious in retrospect that we discovered with the approach of very aggressive time boxing <laughs> is that uh, starting anew to get to a specific point where the thing starts to look like something takes a lot of effort and time. And I think this is one of the things we're trying to solve with this project. Like, can we move that effort outside of the project? So you start 
with a position where you already have some reactive ink on the page and can start building in that medium versus coming up with a whole stack of functionality just to get to a point where you actually start your research project and it's like three weeks left of the three months that we have. Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of a question of are we on the right track, right? Are we on the right track? And if so, then if only it had a couple extra features, if only it was a little more performant, if only whatever, it would be great. I mean, I think there's no way to know. I do think it's sort of a follow your intuitions, follow your nose kind of thing. But I do think one of the signals that I look for is at the end of a project, and especially this sort of interstitial time between when a project ends and we're sort of wrapping up the essay and when folks are thinking about the next project. You know, sometimes we finish a project and it's sort of like we summited a big mountain and everyone's like, well, I'm glad we did that. Definitely don't want to do that again. Let's maybe go over in this other direction. And other times people are like, man, that was so great. I'm really sad to stop working. There's all these things. It feels right at my fingertips, just out of reach, these things that I wanted to add that would make it better. And there's a lot of sort of momentum and desire to keep going. And I think that sort of indicates whether something was an interesting but weird sidetrack versus maybe on, on the main path. And I think we've increasingly been starting to feel like we're more on the main path in that we have a lot of folks who have worked on these various tracks who are just, their excitement seems to be going up and their desire to keep working on it seems to be going up and our desire to do projects that are sort of follow-ons to the previous project versus let's break new ground, go in a different direction. There seems to be more convergence happening. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily indicate we're on the right track, but it certainly feels that way. And I think we're going to focus a little bit more on going further down this path that we're on rather than finding new paths, which is sometimes a mode that we're in. So, yeah, we'll see what happens. Stay tuned. Well, let's wrap it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have feedback, write us on Twitter at MuseAppHQ or via email, hello at MuseApp.com. And James, Ramon, thanks for stretching our minds with what might be possible with a different way to think about using the dynamic medium of computing and digital ink. And very excited to see what comes next. Thanks for having us. Always fun to chat. Yeah, thanks. Thanks.